Welcome back to the Nick Finzer Audio Experience. Today we are diving into a Q&A. And uh, in this Q&A, we're learning lots of tunes at once. We're talking about how to do that. We're talking about expanding the upper register. I know it's a question a lot of people want to know the answer to. Uh, you might be dissatisfied with my answer, but you'll have to listen and let me know what you think. And then uh, we're talking about resources, resources for students, ways to move forward, ways to take advantage of uh, the resources that you have and find more because there's an unlimited amount out there at this point. So uh, there's just so many great resources on the internet uh, that didn't exist when I was coming up too. And I'm not that old, <laughs> but uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to the audio experience. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please leave us a rating on your favorite podcast app and uh, share it with a friend. So have a great day. Enjoy the episode. We'll catch you real soon. Uh, if you haven't yet started the Rhythm Changes course, the Rhythm Changes course is now is still available. It's officially launched. We've got all the parts are uploaded and into the teachable.com studio. So if you're interested in checking that out, feel free to head over to nickfinzer.store and you can find uh, all the links there. Go to the website, whatever. Instagram bio. But yes, we have Rhythm Changes course. We have the Jazz Trombone Boot Camp happening uh, in June. So the Jazz Trombone Bootcamp is happening in June uh, 14 through 18. We've got a lot of great guests, Andre Hayward, we've got Michael Davis, we've got Steve Davis, we've got Vincent Gardner. It's going to be a heck of a good time. So if you want four or five days of intense jazz trombone learning, uh, it's about four or five hours a day. And um, that's available at nickfinzer.store. So we'll do that. It's one of those things that uh, you're going to, if you don't get there, you're going to wish you had been. When you were trying to learn a lot of tunes at a time, would you go one at a time until it was solid or would you chip on a few at a time, building them up together? I mean, I think there's multiple schools of thought on this, but I think you can really pretty much only focus on one thing at a time, ultimately. Um, so I would pick one or two tunes per week. And I know it seems like maybe that's impossible, but one or two tunes per week and go deep, not wide with those tunes. And then have like a repository of tunes where you're practicing them on a regular basis, meaning like there's two or one or two that you're learning. And then there's four or five other ones that you're reviewing every week and you're reviewing, you're playing in different keys, kind of extending the life, extending the practice shelf life of those things. So you don't get too bored too quickly because I know that's like a big thing. It's like burnout on a tune like our in our studio, we were working on um, giant steps or train changes or a countdown, depending on the student. And um, like after two weeks, it's kind of like, do I really want to hear this anymore? What's a question you wish people would ask you more? And what's your answer to that question? I guess I wish they would <clears throat> they would ask more about specific specifics rather than generalities in, in, in kind of a big picture. Specifics about thinking beyond the trombone, because uh, we kind of get caught up in our little trombone land, you know, and like, oh, trombone does this and we need to get the trombone in front of more people because people don't know that the trombone can be a wonderful instrument that sounds and plays wonderfully and can connect with people people might think it's brash or blary or just like glissandos and not a good instrument to listen to so i think like all of us banding together to improve the overall reputation of the instrument in the general public will allow everyone to have more opportunity. So I think sometimes we just get too narrow. And I wish I, w I wish people would think of more about how they can worry less about playing high notes or lead and more about how they can play music that connects with people and puts the trombone in the front, you know, puts the trombone as something that people want to listen to, people want to think about, 
just like they would a saxophone or anything else. If you had to pick five to 10 people to represent jazz trombone in the 21st century, who would you pick? Wycliffe Gordon, Steve Davis, Marshall Jilks, Ryan Keberly, maybe a lesser known person, but Dion Tucker, James Burton, Willie Applewhite, I'm gonna keep going, Michael Deese, I think some, some guys that maybe even are younger than me, like Andy Clausen, out on the West Coast. There's some great players as well. I'm thinking kind of New York-centrically, but that was already more than five to 10. But I think someone like Michael Dees, Marshall, Keberly, you know, people that are putting out products of original music frequently. I think Andre Hayward, Vincent Gardner, uh, Chris Crenshaw, Elliot Mason, all those guys are doing the same. I think Elliot Mason also defines the 21st century of trombone too. I think that what defines it all is this kind of elevated level of harmonic sophistication and technical execution, basically. It's kind of like the next step beyond JJ, you know. JJ had a lot of technical ability, but not in the way that Elliot did, does, you know, or or um, Elliot or Marshall or Michael Deese, you know. It's just like on a whole next level. If you're looking for new music to check out, this week, uh, speaking of Michael Dees, he's on um, Ulysses Owens' new record, uh, and a new single came out today uh, called Harlem, Harlem, Harlem. So if you're looking for stuff to, to dig, dig into, Ulysses Owens, who's a, I got to plug, you know, the, the things coming out on our label, Outside of Music. So Stephen Feifke and his big band, their record, excuse me, drops next Friday. Um, lots of big, big projects at Outside in Music coming up, so that's good. With music getting more innovative and intricate, do you think a simpler jazz album that only have head charts, head solos head, has a chance to stand out? It depends who you ask, I suppose. If you ask the critics, maybe not. If you ask the players, I think so. I think we all enjoy a really well-executed straight-ahead record. I mean, I know I do. I think that um, just putting in a little bit more effort beyond head solo head can be um, um, beneficial. I think, uh, but I, but I, I think a lot of people are making more like project-based, more like landscape kind of based tunes and compositions and integrating different sounds and stuff. I mean, but you should do what's true to you. I mean, I think if it's just head solo head, I mean, I work, that works for one or two tunes, but I would try to switch it up probably. Uh, if I was gonna say, if, it's, if your job is to stand out, I think um, being a little bit more thoughtful is important. I think if you play great, though, it's going to stand out no matter what. You know, the, the, that's the thing that really it all comes back to is like no matter how sophisticated the composition, um, no matter how tricky you are in the production, you know, like it's not going to be good unless you play well. You know, what's the coolest gig you've ever played? Coolest players you've ever met? Well, I posted it today. Curtis Fuller. That was the best uh, like guest artist experience or like slide Curtis. Just like those legends to me. You know, I never got to meet J.J. He passed away before I even got serious about jazz or trombone. So, so JJ, Kurt, but yeah, the Curtis, I posted on my Instagram and on my Facebook uh, a picture with Curtis that popped up as a memory. Who did you talk to about jazz, trombone, and music before you met more people after high school? I was really lucky. I had um, a group that I played with on Saturdays, which was a collection of jazz musicians, high school age jazz musicians uh, in Rochester. It was called, the band was called the Eastman, Eastman Youth Jazz Orchestra. So in the Eastman Youth Jazz Orchestra, we used to get together and play Duke's music, and then we ended up that very first year I was in it going to New York for essentially Ellington and all this kind of stuff. So we focused on that music, and that really got me in touch with a lot of people that were just focused on playing jazz. And when I say jazz, I mean swing, Ellington, transcribing solos, digging into the harmony, learning tunes, 
And some of the first gigs came through that. Some of my first performance opportunities of like real swing, blues, jazz, like real stuff, like uh, through that. You know, my high school band, my high school program, we had a jazz band, but it kind of was like a cross between a jazz band and like a stage band, you know, like more focused on the execution of charts than improvisation and stuff like that, which is okay. Nothing wrong with it, but uh, that's where I really got my my feet wet, hands dirty, whatever. What are your favorite live records? What do you like or dislike about live records compared to studio records? I love live records because it's just like what was happening. That's what I like. I mean, even in the studio, I try to go with full takes and I try to go with non-editing of solos because I feel like it just gives a more raw vibe and it gives a more interactive vibe and it gives a more um, well-rounded picture of what the band is really doing, really saying, and what the music is quote-unquote supposed to sound like, like as intended, you know, from front to finish, start to finish. Not to say it can't be done other ways because it certainly can. My favorite faux live, rec live record has got to be JJ in person, but I mean I like that that Vanguard record he did because, you know, that's one. Live at the Plug Nickel is really interesting. It's really interesting to, you know, watch live videos of like more and more of those like videos from the late 80s and 90s that are popping up on YouTube to see how people play, to see how those bands worked together. I find that's to be super interesting. I mean, there's a, a live record from Gil Evans Project that's really good. Ryan Truesdale, and there's Maria Jazz Standard, her Jazz Standard record. But there's a lot of good live records. But that's kind of what I, the trade-offs is always sound versus vibe. And to me, the vibe is always more important. Any advice for keeping your place in a, in a drum solo, particularly after someone starts talking to you? Oh man, um, you just gotta count, man. Hopefully the drummer will bring you in too. D depends on uh, what the tune is, I suppose. You gotta, you have to keep track on your own. Just don't let people talk to you. Should be listening to the drummer. If you're looking at the drummer, they probably won't talk to you anyway. So if you, they know that you're focused in on keeping your spot, but yeah, don't let people talk to you. I guess it's really easy to lose place. Like you're counting along, and then they flip the beat around and do something really cool, and you're like, oh no, well, where's the beat? It happens all the time. So I wouldn't be too um, discouraged by that fact because it happens to all of us. I think at some point, best way to improve style and vocabulary improvising. Oh, that's an easy one. Transcribe, play with the original recording. That's the best way to improve your style, your feel, your vocabulary, and to get into the flow of what it feels like to really play a good improvised solo. So, you know, go to someone who plays super clear, simple. Someone clear is J.J. Johnson, very clear. Sometimes he plays a little fast, but most all of his solos are very clear. And go to someone like that. Go to someone like Miles Davis on So What, Curtis on Blue Train. Uh, there's a fast part, so maybe just leave that part out. But... Um, and play along. That's the most important part. And record yourself playing along and then listen back to back, A, B it. So you're like, okay, did I sound exactly like Curtis? Is my articulation the same? Is my vibe the same? Are my uh, decorations the same? Uh, are my, is the notes the same? I mean, that's pretty obvious, but the rhythms and notes has to come first. And then from there, you know, you can get all the style, but that's the most clearest, fastest, best way is uh, just, plowing ahead and uh, doing solo, 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 transcribe, transcribe. What motivates you to keep going? Just the the eternal striving for, you know, creating an, the impact that you want to create, you know, with your music and reaching people and trying to, trying to just like actually reach the thing in my head that I thought of when I was 13 years old and got on stage at, um, got on stage at uh, like Alice Tully Hall when I was in 10th grade and was like, wow, this is awesome. I'm going to do this. 
you know. Uh, what are some crucial warm-up slash fundamental exercises that you've borrowed from other people that may be uncommon or unknown? Oh, man, yeah, I've borrowed, I borrowed this from James Burton, and um, I think via Michael Deese, I think. So basically it's like, it's like skipping partials, so like you'd go B-flat, B-flat, F, and then you go A-flat, A-flat, E-flat. So I call them like un- out of order, kind of like lip slurs, out of order lip slurs. And so we go, buddy, do, do, da, do, do, And then the same thing, same pattern, like a half step, a whole step away. It's in my book, the first book, Get Ahead. So yeah, I borrowed those. I mean, I guess, I don't know if they're common or unknown, but they're basically lip slurs where you skip partials. So it's like, you can use any two, any three partials and kind of say, like bottom, top, middle, so B flat, B flat, F, and then top, bottom, middle. So it's kind of inverse of one another. Boo, dee, doo, dee, doo, da. And you repeat the whole thing down a half step. So second and fourth, third and fifth, fifth and seventh, sixth, sixth, and yeah, you can't do anything with that. But um, yeah, Dees. Dees via Bert, James Burton is where I got it from. How many albums do you know by heart? Really, really by heart? Probably five, only like five or 10 at the most. I think that you can only know super deep, like so much stuff, you know? Like you can't know everything for everyone at all times, you know? But those early records that were on on repeat, you know? Uh, JJ in person or slash trombone master, like that I know 100% by heart to the octet record that some of those Joshua Redman elastic band records, I know those by heart for sure. Uh, Bright Size Life, Pat Metheny. Um, some of those Brecker records, Pilgrimage. And so Alton asked a question here about um, publishing books. Uh, I have a nonprofit, and the nonprofit has a publishing arm. And so we have a publishing company that goes through there. I mean, there's a lot that you can self-publish. Uh, there's a lot of, there's tools on Amazon to publish. But it's the same, it's similar to like setting up a record label or something like that. You set up a publishing company that, you know, handles all of that stuff and handles the, distribution and handles uh, the royalties and all that kind of stuff. So that's how I do it. We set it up, the, the our nonprofit's called the Institute for Creative Music, and so it's called the IFCM Press. And so it's just like one arm of uh, what we do. Um, I have distributed through Jamie Abersold before, the first book, uh, and that was just by reaching out and asking. Um, you just ask, hey, I have this book. Do you want to sell it? And they say, okay, sure. Send us five copies or 10 copies. And then you see if it um, ends up selling and then they'll order more. Or you do it yourself just with PDFs. You know, Chad Lefkowitz Brown doing a great job just doing that through his website, Jazz Lesson Videos. I mean, he doesn't like go through a bookstore. Adam Larson, same deal, self-published. How many hours do you just listen to jazz albums in a typical week? Is there some order to the types of jazz you should listen to? Pick one. Rec- My recommendation is to pick one record and learn it inside, of, inside and out, whatever it might be. Something that you really love, and something that you can listen to just that for like, for a long time. So back when it was easier to just listen to one thing, like having a CD in your CD player in the car, it would just be one CD for months at a time, and I would just listen to one CD over and over and over, which makes it um, easier. Yeah, one record, dive deep. And uh, make sure it's something related to what you're learning so that way you're, you're kind of getting it both together, whatever you're transcribing, um, because it's easy to get distracted and kind of go in a million directions and listen to a million different things. So because you're always going to have people telling you to listen to a million different things. And I, this same advice goes to my students, like I'm going to tell them stuff. Other faculty is going to tell them stuff. And like you've got to kind of sift through it and figure out like, all right, I'm going to focus on this right now. Like, do I need to be learning standards? Do I need to be learning post bop? Do I need to be learning hard bop? Do I need to be learning 
my arm's strong? Do I need to be, what am I trying to get into my brain right now? And kind of taking, again, like chapters or phases, you know, there was deep dive into JJ Ellington at the beginning. And then it was a deep dive into Wycliffe Gordon for me. And then it was no trombone for like four years where I was like, no way. And then my senior year at Eastman, I was like, no, JJ is awesome. Curtis is awesome. And I had to kind of flip back around and kind of then go back into that. So I think it's fine to have chapters where you're listening to stuff on your instrument and then not and then back and then forth. And you, you, you know, you got to figure it out. What was it about jazz that ignited the fire? Was there a particular moment? I know yeah, the moment was being in New York and being 13 years old and being on stage and playing Ellington's music to a bunch of enthusiastic jazz lovers. I mean, it was also for, you know, people like the Lincoln Center guys and whoever was there that was adjudicating that competition at that time. But that was that was it. And just the energy of the city and everything and just like the legacy of like, this is it. This is where jazz happens. And that just inspired me. Uh, whether or not that that was 100% true, I don't know. But that's what kind of legend went into my brain. And I just went from there. And so I kept that in mind. And then kind of my awareness kind of grew. But that was the moment. That was, that was it for me. Uh, was getting into Duke's music first and then going to New York. That first time going to New York. Like I grew up in Rochester, New York, which is like six hours away, 300 miles or so from New York City. We went one time as a kid, but I didn't think anything special. But going there to play music was totally different experience for me. And it was totally um, changed everything. I wanted to be a classical trombone player. I wanted to get into the orchestra and play trombone and do that whole thing. And that just changed everything. Uh, thanks for being here, Ben. Advice on practicing upper register expansion, fourth ledger line, B flat and above while balancing fatigue and minimizing breath. Okay, I'll say it and I've said it and I've put it in a YouTube video before. Play melodies in the upper register to improve your upper register. Stop playing exercises, play tunes, play melodies, and play them through until you're tired and then take a break. It's actually much simpler than we think. In my experience, I would, when I was really focused on it, I would practice it at the end of the day, so when I was already tired, and then focus on moving the air, getting the notes out via the air, realizing how you can feel your chops fatiguing and knowing that, okay, more air, more air, more air, more air, and playing long tones in the upper register and tunes in the upper register, and eventually, of course, exercises in the upper register, extending your normal stuff. Just It's got to be just the normal stuff, because if it's not just the normal stuff, you're going to end up with all kinds of inconsistencies across the board, you know? Like it's gotta be really uh, consistent with the rest of your register. So, I mean, you asked about not moving around and stuff. Uh, well, that comes from extending into the upper register. But like one really great, you know, I like to use um, the first phrase or the first A section from Getting Sentimental. You can put the last A, it doesn't matter. Um, and then going up in half steps, that's a really good one because it goes an octave, uh, a full octave. So you, you can connect like it's in D. So you can connect that C sharp, low C sharp, D, F sharp, A up to the high C sharp. And then if you keep going, you can connect it the, that middle, mid upper register to the high register. Um, and then for sustained notes, I like to use um, how insensitive because it's just long notes, man. Right. So if you start on the high A, it's in D minor usually. So if you start on the fifth 
and then you go you can play that and so i would just sometimes even turn on the play along track and be like all right i'm going to play this melody like three times or four times in the upper register to build build it up for me it's a balance between actually you do need some musculature here uh, in in the corners to like hold that when you get tired to not let the air leak out but then at the same time it's about the air and, and the focusing of the air and i find i found through my time with steve troy that a lot of the some of the problems I would have with the upper register had to do with the vowel sound and that I didn't have my tongue raised enough and I had never thought about it. So like, instead of like, da in the same notes, like it's so much space, it's like too much inside your mouth to actually um, do it. How did you balance deep diving into the artists you like and deep diving into artists that are important to jazz overall? Uh, at the beginning, it was only stuff I liked and that was, like I said, JJ, Ellington, and Wycliffe Gordon. That was it. And then I had a phase. I had a phase of the bad plus. I remember when I first got, I remember this actually. It's kind of funny. We went to, on a college visit to Miami, University of Miami. And we went to a record store. And that re the first record, it was Orange. I forget what it's called. The, like the first big one, the ma first major label one that they had. Um, because they, I, I, re, I learned recently they had some other ones before that, but um, that first major label record from Bad Plus and my mom hated it. She hated it. And I liked it. She thought it sounded like noise. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And like they're playing, they are playing some noise, but they're playing rock tunes and this and that and all this stuff. And I was just like, whoa. And um, so that's when I started exploring beyond, you know, like beyond just trombone stuff. But balancing, you know, but it was huge for me just listening to trombone from the beginning. And when somebody says like, you should listen to this, like y you should, and you should transcribe and use it educationally um, and just learn it. Cause there's a thing about music and familiarity. And this is why the radio, why pop music on the radio has worked for a long time and why payola was a thing. Like people like familiar music. They like to hear stuff that they've heard before. That's why there's algorithms that produce pop music now that sounds exactly like what pop music sounds like is because people like the familiarity. So if you actually trick yourself by listening more and more and more, you'll actually like it because you've heard it more, you know, even if you don't like it at first. Um, there's a deep dive I did with um, Chick Corea. Now, now he sings, now he sobs excuse me that was a big big one but yeah you can trick yourself into liking something by listening to it a lot um so even if you're like oh, i don't know if i like this like you can say there's something in here that i like there's got to be something and um oh another one herbie hancock speak like a child um just listen to that on repeat for a long time that was in the phase of like going away from trombone before i came back to being like jj a friend of mine, Joe McDonough, great trombonist. We did a duo, a, a two trombone record together, if you haven't heard it. But Joe said to me one time when we were in grad school, we went to Juilliard together when I was in a funk. He's like, man, you just got to listen to the records you like. I was like, oh, and I did put me in a better mood. And I was like, oh, he's just totally right. You have to have stuff you like. And you just go back to that. There's stuff you're learning. There's stuff you're learning for gigs. There's stuff that you're learning for school. And then there's the stuff that you love, you know. The first thing you have to do when you get out of school is get rid of the word and idea of should. You know, it's a trap. Like, I should do this, I should do that, I should learn this, I should learn that. And it's like, yeah, well, if you want to be, have a well-rounded education, then yes, there's like a number of things that you probably should learn. However, you can't know everything and you can't learn everything. So you have to be selective. Have you played the Bach cello suites? Yes. I love playing the Bach cello suites. Really great for 
connecting, playing legato, connecting the registers. And then what I did is um, take that concept and apply it to jazz tunes in the book that's called Get Set. Yeah, it's a book of etudes. So that's a thing that I liked um, doing was taking the concept of practicing those and applying it to jazz tunes. And then the next step beyond that is try to improvise in a way that sounds like a Bach cello suite, but over a standard. So that's a, that's a challenge that I've taken on uh, many times when I get bored with a tune. Like, can I play this a la Bach cello suite? So you just get rid of all the bebop um, rhythms and just focus on uh, practicing that, that concept, that idea. What kind of books and resources do you have your students use to work on jazz fundamentals? I have them transcribe. I don't have them use books. Um, the best thing you can do is throw away all the books. Uh, there's good books. I don't mean that literally, but um, there's lots of great transcription books and etude books and different ideas around, you know, jazz materials. But again, I will reiterate, learn transcriptions, learn it from the players, do 10 JJ, 10 Curtis, 10 Slide, 10 of your favorite, 10 off of your instrument. That's 50 transcriptions and you're going to be way ahead of like buying 10 books. I tell you that a hundred percent, you know, somebody asked last week, what, like, what was, what do I listen for in an audition when I, when there's young players coming in to audition for UNT? And my answer is always, I listen to see if they listen to jazz. That's it. Pretty much. Can, do they listen to jazz? Can they, do they have some basic fundamentals on the trombone? And, uh, and then, you know, there's like, are they coachable? This kind of thing. Uh, also, but, um, but it's all about listening and learning right from the records. So. Curtis Fuller jazz tune. I like um, I like a la mode. That's a good one. The Court. That's one of my favorites. Favorite um, tunes. You can't stand. Girl from Ipanema. Does that count? No, I, I can uh, stand that one. Blue Boss. I guess on my nerves sometimes. Um, not because it's not a good tune, but just it gets over overplayed and overplayed badly. There's actually a bunch of tunes for big band that I can't stand, but I'm not gonna air that out here because. It's not fair to those people because uh, they're written for a specific purpose to like engage young musicians and they just drive me insane because they're not about what I'm about, which is you know, the swing and learning the vocabulary and the style and all that kind of stuff. So uh, we're going to sign off for today and we'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for being here. I appreciate you all. Hope you have a wonderful weekend uh, wherever you might be. Make sure you go get vaccinated when you can uh, so that we can move on with the uh, with uh, 2021 and hopefully get back to some live performances. There's the inkling of some things coming in the fall, but I am hesitant to say that they're really happening. So um, hopefully we will see you all back on the road in the fall, but have a great weekend and I'll catch you soon.